And that's the drunk tank. And this is Mommy's desk. Mom, I know your intentions are good, but aren't the police a protective force that maintains the status quo for the wealthy elites? Don't you think we ought to attack the roots of social problems instead of jamming people into overcrowded prisons? You have the emergence in human society of this thing that's called the state. What is the state? The state is this organized bureaucracy. It is the police department. It is the army, the navy. It is the prison system, the courts, and what have you. This is the state. It is a repressive organization. But the state in three well, you know, you've got to have the police, because if there were no police, look at what you'd be doing to yourselves. You'd be killing each other if there were no police. But the reality is, the police become necessary in human society. You know how we think Organize the hood under our ching banners Red, black, and green instead of gang bandanas FBI spying on us through the radio antennas And them hitting cameras in the street like watching society With no respect for the people's right to privacy I'll take a slug for the cause like Huey P While all you fake niggas try to copy Master P I wanna be free to live Able to have what I need to live Bring the power back to the street where the people live We sick of working for crumbs and filling up the prisons Dying over money and relying on religion for help we do for self like ants in a colony organize the wealth into a socialist economy a way of life based off the common needs and all my comrades is ready we just spreading the seed you have black male live a third of his life in a jail cell cause the world is controlled by the white male and the people don't never get justice and the women don't never get respected and the problems don't never get solved and the jobs don't never pay enough so the rent always be late Can you relate? No more bondage, no more political monsters, no more secret space launches. Government departments started it in the projects, material objects, thousands up in the closets. Could have been invested in the future for my comrades. Battle contacts, primitive weapons out in combat. Many never come back, pretty niggas be running with gas. Rather get shot in they back than fire back. We're tired of that. Corporations hiring blacks, denying the facts, exploiting us all over the map. That's why I write the shit I write in my raps. It's documented, I minute every day of the week i live in it breathing it it's more than just fucking believing it i'm holding in ones rolling up my sleeves and shit it's c-lo for push-ups now many headed for one conclusion niggas ain't ready for revolution the average black male live a third of his life in a jail cell cause the world is controlled by the white male and the people don't never get justice and the women don't never get respected and the problems don't never get solved and the jobs don't never pay enough So the rent always be late Can you relate? We living in a police state
And that was two tracks mashed up to get us started this episode. First up, that was Police Priorities. That was the clip featuring The Simpsons. That is a track released by The Truth. Following that was Police State by Dead Prez. Greetings and welcome to Howie 2020. This is an independent podcast on progressive politics inspired by Howie Hawkins, Bernie Sanders, Angela Walker, progressive and radical activism, and the Green Party. This podcast is completely independent of any candidate party pack or political organization. If you want to check out all the back episodes of Howie 2020 and Bernie 2020, you can find those at bernie-2020.com. You'll find links there to make a donation to keep this podcast free and independent, and you'll find a link there as well to send me a message. First up is a piece published at thenation.com. This is written by Ellie Mistel. The police are lying in L.A., and the media is falling for it. Again. Video released over the weekend captures an unknown assailant firing indiscriminately into a police cruiser in an attempt to murder the two Los Angeles County Sheriff's deputies sitting inside. Thankfully, the officers appear to have survived the attempt on their lives. A manhunt is underway for the suspect, and police have offered a $100,000 reward for information leading to his capture. As I sit down to write this, it is tempting to give in to my complete disgust with how the police usually frame and the media then cover a more common situation, police shootings of unarmed black people. By offering some of my own, just presenting both sides coverage. When a cop fires indiscriminately into a car, killing a man and his, as his girlfriend sits beside him and her baby in the back seat, which is precisely what happened to Philando Castile. The media bends over backward to present the murderer's side of the story. There's no manhunt. The killer is allowed to turn himself in peacefully at his convenience. Later, he gets cleared of all charges. The cops who kill us almost always go free. I could write that piece, but I'm not going to, because while such a piece would be righteous and justified, it would also be wrong. I hope they catch the guy seen in the video shooting those cops. I really do. I hope they take him alive and that he stands trial for his suspected crimes. I'd rather not use the attempted murder of two police officers as a Matthew McConaughey opportunity to say, quote, Now imagine the shooter was white. I just wish that the rest of the media could restrain itself from turning the attempted murder of police officers into an indictment of the protests against the police who murder black people. As it is, the police stenographers employed by many mainstream media outlets are falling into that trap. Reporters are already republishing police narratives about why the shooting happened without verifying the police stories or calling police speculation about why the shooting took place just that, speculation, in the absence of any evidence. In the immediate aftermath of the shooting, the official Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department Twitter account tweeted out the following. Quote, 
to the protesters blocking the entrance and exit of the hospital emergency room, yelling, we hope they die, referring to two L.A. sheriffs ambushed today in Compton. Do not block emergency entries and exits to the hospital. People's lives are at stake when ambulances can't get through. That tweet gave the impression that some kind of street uprising had sprung up at the hospital and that many people clearly involved had attempted in some way to deny injured police officers medical care. The narrative that protesters, quote, blocked the hospital entrance was then picked up by the press. So I heard MSNBC's Hallie Jackson repeating it on her show when I turned on the television Monday morning. After hearing the charge, I went to the internet to look for the video of this alleged protest. Here, and there's a link, is what the L.A. County sheriffs were apparently talking about. As you can see in the video, the quote, protest, appears to be about four guys hovering around the emergency entrance, shouting invectives. It wasn't a protest, and they weren't preventing any medical vehicles from entering or exiting the hospital. It was a few people who gave into the justified yet wrong anger I myself overcame this morning through the grace of coffee and the backspace key. To call this group of individuals protesters who blocked the entrance as the police did is misleading at best. To repeat the disinformation, as journalists did, simply because it was on a police Twitter account, is bad journalism. As the police were arresting one of the men shouting at the cops, an NPR radio reporter, Josie Wong, stepped forward to get a better look. Police tackled and injured her. Police claimed that Wong didn't identify herself as a reporter and refused to leave the area when asked. Over the weekend, the media again reflexively reprinted this police narrative. Then Wong released her own video of the event. It shows that she immediately backed up when told to do so and identified herself as a reporter, even as police were throwing her to the ground. Reporters who reprint or rebroadcast the official story for why police tackled a reporter without first talking to the reporter tackled deserve to be tackled by other, better reporters. As nearly every black person has been trying to tell the media since the invention of police, cops lie. They lie, mislead, or issue untruthful statements all the time. White journalists must stop repeating police lies uncritically without demanding evidence to back up police claims or even doing a bare minimum Google search to see if there is video that directly contradicts police statements. Skepticism of police statements should be a basic requirement of competent journalism, but it is particularly critical in times like this, when police have a reason to lie. The police are angry at the attempted murder of two officers, and they want other people to be angry, so they are not even trying to provide an accurate account of events. Instead, they are trying to build a case against Black Lives Matter. Los Angeles County Sheriff Alex Villanueva, whose office tweeted out the misleading story about, quote, protesters at the hospital, could barely contain his contempt for BLM protesters in his statement about the shooting. Quote, 
This is just a somber reminder that this is a dangerous job, and actions and words have consequences. Our job does not get any easier because people do not, do not like law enforcement, Villanueva said. It pisses me off. It dismays me at the same time. In this statement, Villanueva is trying to draw a direct line between the, quote, actions and words of protesters to the attempted murder of police officers. He seems less interested in drawing a line from police brutality and the murder of black people to the attempted murder of police officers. The reality is that we don't know why the suspect tried to kill these two officers, but we can see with our own eyes that his actions were wrong and dangerously misguided. Speculation into his motives is irresponsible absent evidence. It is wrong for journalists to speculate, and it is wrong for journalists to repeat the unverified, potentially unhinged speculations of the L.A. County Sheriff without any evidence whatsoever. It's not like the social justice organization ambushed two police officers in a parked car. It's not like social justice organizations have a history of targeting police officers for murder. But the person who did target and ambush police officers appears to be black, and thus, apparently, it's all our faults. That's how racial profiling works, don't you know? So the police already have their villain, and they are enacting their retribution. On Sunday, L.A. County Sheriff's deputies shut down a, quote, protest encampment across from L.A. City Hall. The holdouts had been there for months, living peacefully but cops cleared it mere hours after the shooting. Cops claim it was taken down because of, quote, deteriorating conditions. But nobody is required to be addled enough to believe them. The inability and unwillingness of the media to accurately report on police lies and sensationalism will have the effect of excusing additional acts of police brutality. The police will point to the one guy who shot police officers, for reasons not yet known, and the one dude who shouted, I hope y'all die, as justification for cops to go out on the street tonight and violate the constitutional rights of black people, or beat black people, or kill black people. And by refusing to call out police hysteria, the media will make that hysteria seem reasonable. Given the stakes, it's not too much to ask the media to do its job. It's not too much to ask journalists to act like journalists instead of stenographers. If I can restrain myself from being a snarky, irresponsible axe grinder when it comes to blue lives, it's not too much to ask mainstream sources to think before retweeting or republishing the latest round of blue lies. Next up is a piece published at Slate.com. This is written by Mark Joseph Stern. The police lie all the time. Can anything stop them? Would the criminal justice system collapse if cops were forced to tell the truth? Christopher Parham was grocery shopping for his boss when Henry Daverin, a plainclothes NYPD officer, approached him. Davrin accused Parham of driving recklessly on an illegal scooter without a helmet. A few minutes later, Parham was writhing in pain on the sidewalk outside. What happened during those few minutes was a matter of dispute. The NYPD said that Parham, a black 19-year-old, 
had violently resisted arrest. Davrin and his colleagues said that they did not use force against him, even though Parham had gruesome taser burns all across his back. Then surveillance video of the episode emerged and proved that nearly every detail of the NYPD's account was false. Parham had immediately cooperated with Davrin. He did not resist arrest. Nonetheless, Davrin and his colleagues had assaulted Parham, tackling him to the ground, then tasing him over and over again. After Parham's attorneys released the video and his local representatives raised concerns, the district attorney dropped all charges. Davrin, who had been named in at least 10 other misconduct lawsuits, was never disciplined, either for brutalizing Parham or for lying about it. Two years later, he remains on the force. The police reaction to George Floyd's murder, as well as the resulting nationwide protests, introduced many Americans to the fact that law enforcement officers lie. After Officer Derek Chauvin killed George Floyd, the Minneapolis Police Department issued a statement falsely claiming that Floyd, quote, physically resisted officers, and excluding the fact that Chauvin knelt on Floyd's neck for nearly nine minutes. When Buffalo police officers violently shoved a peaceful 75-year-old man, their department falsely asserted that the victim, quote, tripped and fell during a skirmish involving protesters. This tendency to lie pervades all police work, not just high-profile violence, and it has the power to ruin lives. Law enforcement officers lie so frequently in affidavits on post-indictment paperwork on the witness stand that officers have coined a word for it, testilying. Judges and juries generally trust police officers, especially in the absence of footage disproving their testimony. As courts reopen and convene juries, many of the same officers now confronting protesters in the street will get back on the stand. Defense attorneys around the country believe the practice is ubiquitous. While that belief might seem self-serving, it is borne out by footage captured on smartphones and surveillance cameras. Yet those best positioned to crack down on testilying, police chiefs and prosecutors, have done little or nothing to stop it in most of the country. Prosecutors rely on officer testimony, true or not, to secure convictions, and merely acknowledging the problem would require the government to admit that there is almost never real punishment for police perjury. Officers have a litany of incentives to lie, but there are two especially powerful motivators. First, most evidence obtained from an illegal search may not be used against a defendant at a trial under the Fourth Amendment's exclusionary rule. Thus, officers routinely provide false justifications for searching or arresting a civilian. Second, when police break the law, they can, in theory, suffer real consequences, including suspension, dismissal, and civil lawsuits. In many notorious test-lying cases, including Parham's, officers blame the victim for their own violent behavior in a bid to justify disproportionate use of force and departments will reward officers whose arrests lead to convictions with promotions. 
Two major cities are taking two different approaches to the problem. In New York City, prosecutors keep secret databases of unreliable police officers, though only two boroughs actually prohibit those officers from taking the stand. Without further reforms, however, this approach fails to address the underlying problem. Prosecutors are reluctant to accuse officers of lying in the first place, or to investigate an officer's claims to learn if they align with reality. As a result, an officer who lies convincingly can evade the list indefinitely. In San Francisco, by contrast, District Attorney Chase Abudin has sought to eradicate the incentives that lead police to lie in the first place. Both cities are witnessing an experiment play out in real time. What happens when the criminal justice system can no longer rely on its enforcers to tell the truth? The New York Police Department provides a case study in how the criminal justice system rewards lying. One NYPD officer, David Greco, commonly known as Bullethead, has been sued at least 32 times costing the city $343,252 for civil rights violations, including excessive force and fabrication of evidence. Yet Grieco was promoted and prosecutors continued to call him to the stand long after a slew of his victims blew the whistle on his violent and lawless behavior. Judges continued to rely on his word to lock up defendants, and Grieco's name did not appear on Brooklyn District Attorney Eric Gonzalez's long-secret list of officers with known credibility problems. Grieco is a symptom of a much deeper problem. Widespread lying about Fourth Amendment violations is at least as old as the exclusionary rule itself. The Supreme Court applied this rule nationwide in 1961's MAP v. Ohio, preventing state prosecutors from relying upon illegally obtained evidence to secure a conviction. MAP spawned a surge in dropsy cases. Rather than admit to an illegal search, police claimed that defendants simply dropped drugs on the ground in front of them, since evidence found, quote, in plain view, can be used at trial. Studies of criminal trials in New York City found that after MAP, police began lying about arrests to ensure that evidence would be admissible. In the early 1970s, the New York District Attorney even told the New York Court of Appeals that that since MAP, officers lied on the stand in a substantial number of dropsy cases. Two decades later, the Mullen Commission, a famous investigation of the NYPD, found that officers routinely engaged in perjury and falsification of records, quote, the most common form of police corruption. When NYPD officers are accused of illegal behavior, the department itself usually investigates, then conceals its findings and imposes, at worst, a slap on the wrist, like brief paid leave. Prosecutors could separately investigate, but they have little incentive to question an officer's story. If they know an officer is lying, they cannot legally rely on his testimony. If they remain in the dark, they can still use his perjury to clinch a conviction. Moreover, prosecutors and police work together to put defendants behind bars, developing a team mentality that prevents prosecutors from scrutinizing officers' testimony with appropriate skepticism.
As long as officers' lies cannot be proved false, prosecutors have little reason to question their account of events. As a New York assistant district attorney told the Mullen Commission, quote, Taking money is considered dirty, but perjury for the sake of an arrest is accepted. It's become more casual. Occasionally, the system will catch these lies. Yvette, an Egyptian-American who lives in New York City, believes cross-examination of deceitful officers likely secured her acquittal. In 2017, Yvette witnessed three NYPD officers arresting the owner of a Brooklyn hookah lounge. As the police were detaining him, he handed Yvette his phone and asked her to call his mom. The officers promptly attacked her, she told me, severely damaging her knee. When she begged for an ambulance, the officers ignored her. Yvette eventually called one herself and learned at the hospital that the attack tore her ACL. When two officers visited her bedside, she asked if they were going to take her statement. They explained that they were there to arrest her for allegedly attacking the officers at the hookah lounge. What those officers did not know was that Yvette had recently recovered from multiple surgeries on her knee, one of which resulted in a staph infection. It had been a mere two weeks since Yvette learned how to walk without a cane again. Now the NYPD was accusing her of a violent assault. At a three-day bench trial, Yvette's public defender, Theodore Hastings, grilled the cops about their account. Two officers claimed that Yvette had attacked them at the exact same time, a physical impossibility. A third alleged that Yvette had run about 500 feet before lunging at the officers. Yvette herself also testified, quote, The judge heard my story and understood and felt my pain, she told me. She saw I really wasn't lying. The judge acquitted Yvette of all charges. But hoping a judge will vindicate the truth is a luxury most wrongfully accused people cannot afford. Not everyone has a medical record or video footage to prove their account. If an individual goes to trial, they have a right to access the arresting officer's record of misconduct because it could help prove their innocence. But the vast majority of criminal cases do not go to trial, and until recently, defense attorneys in New York City could not obtain officers' disciplinary records due to a notorious shield called Section 50A. The state repealed this law in June, and Mayor Bill de Blasio has since promised to publish an online database of police disciplinary records. With the New York City's prosecutors still fighting to conceal their do-not-call lists, it will now be left to defense attorneys, activists, and the public to track untrustworthy officers. Across the country in San Francisco, newly elected District Attorney Chisa Budin is taking a different approach. Budin, a former public defender and staunch critic of mass incarceration, confronted testifying head-on. Quote, Police are allowed to lie and get away with it over and over and over again in matters big and small, he told me. I can think of dozens of examples where police were either able to get away with or face no consequences if they were impeached and called out on their dishonesty. When you have a system of that kind of impunity, it snowballs, it teaches, encourages, and enforces bad behavior. Budin has minimal control over the SFPD itself. 
but he has created a robust do-not-call list of officers, whom his office will not call to the stand as a witness. Officers who are caught testifying go on the list, as do those who commit other forms of misconduct. Budin has also mandated careful assessment of charges, like assaulting an officer and resisting arrest. Quote, when police use excessive force or brutalize someone, Budin said, the most common outcome is that the police arrest the person and act, ask prosecutors to charge that person with resisting arrest or assaulting an officer. He now requires his staff to review video footage of the incident before filing those charges. It's not because we think officers are lying most of the time, he said. We just know that until we watch the video footage, we have no ability to distinguish between a test-lying police report to cover up excessive force and a legitimate criminal activity of assaulting an officer. A third reform may have more direct practical consequences for victims of routine test-lying designed to avoid the exclusionary rule. Too often, officers find a trivial reason to stop someone or just make one up, then discover drugs or weapons in the ensuing search. The target of these pretextual stops is usually a person of color. Quote, We know driving while black is a reality for far too many people, Budin said. If you have dark skin, you're more likely to get pulled over, more likely to get searched, and more likely to get arrested. You're also more likely to have force used during your arrest than if you're white. To disincentivize this behavior, Budin's office stopped charging any contraband case that grew out of a pretextual stop. As an example, he cited searches initiated after a stop for some minor traffic offense. Our vehicle code makes it possible for police to legally stop any car, Budin said. We all know that most drivers do not come to complete stops at stop signs, and most police don't enforce that law most of the time. If the police do pull over a driver for an incomplete stop, and the encounter results in an arrest for possession of drugs or guns, his office will not bring charges. Ilona Solomon, a San Francisco public defender and former colleague of Budin's, admires his work but remains skeptical that he has the power to change the city's broken law enforcement apparatus. Quote, There is an entrenched culture in the DA's office that is very resistant to reform, Solomon told me. Chesa can't fix all the problems immediately and some things he doesn't have control over. Still in his seven months on the job, Budin has made headway in the face of sustained opposition from the SFPD. Solomon pointed to two recent cases involving the same officer, Robert Gilson. In 2017, a California judge found Gilson had, quote, changed his testimony regarding a search and arrest, deeming him not reliable. Yet prosecutors continued to call him to the stand and judges continued to paper over his inconsistencies. In one recent case, Gilson stopped a Samoan man who was holding a bag of marijuana, which is legal in California. After a lengthy search, the officer discovered bindles of cocaine. Gilson's reason for the stop shifted. At the time, he said he wanted to search bulges in the man's pocket. Later, he testified that he sought to determine if the man was holding an illegal amount of marijuana. A judge accepted this reasoning and refused to suppress the cocaine. 
In another case, Gilson stopped a black man, justifying the action because the man was jaywalking. After Gilson threatened to strip-search the man, he let the officer search him, uncovering a small stash of cocaine. A judge refused to suppress the evidence, crediting Gilson's testimony that he believed the man was concealing drugs due to his worried demeanor during the search. Solomon represented both men. She told Budin that in both cases, Gilson had engaged in blatant racial profiling. Budin agreed and dismissed all charges. Still, Budin's office could not say whether it had placed Gilson on its do-not-call list, which is not public. The SFPD confirmed Gilson was assigned to field operations, but said they could not comment further on personnel matters. Kate Levine, a Cardozo law professor and former public defender who studies police accountability, told me she's skeptical that patchwork solutions like do not call lists can ever stamp out testifying. Marianne Kayshan, Kayshan, a public defender in Brooklyn, agreed, noted that it's easy for, quote, clean officers to conceal the involvement of a known dirty cop by keeping his name off all paperwork. Nor do these lists remove officers' strong incentive to lie. Police are more likely to get promoted if they affect more arrests that result in successful prosecutions. Promotions come with more prestige and a higher salary. Prosecutors still have an incentive not to question officers' blue lies. To end test-a-lying, Levine said, quote, I would entirely change incentive structures. Officers would be rewarded for reporting on their colleagues' lies and scrutinized when their stories do not line up. They would no longer be able to coordinate their stories before testifying, a common procedure that lets them iron out potential inconsistencies. Nor could they watch body cam footage before providing their version of events, another perk that's not provided to civilians. Prosecutors would be rewarded for rooting out unconstitutional behavior. Officers who lie and prosecutors who tolerate them would be terminated immediately. In short, the system would encourage police officers and prosecutors to focus less on winning cases and more on following the rules, even when a constitutional violation stands in the way of a conviction. What would happen if a city really tried to eliminate test-a-lying? I posed this question to Bennett Capers, a former federal prosecutor and Fordham law professor who studies police lies. Quote, In all honesty, I think my initial reaction would be that the system cannot exist without it, he told me. It would grind to a halt. Capers said that run-of-the-mill policing would have to change. We are doing about 13 million misdemeanor arrests a year. With a lot of those small crimes, there's fudging. Nobody's paying attention. Police, in other words, would have to stop arresting so many people for minor crimes. Once cities stopped deploying officers to harass misdemeanants, they could shrink their police force, reducing the number of encounters between cops and civilians. Agencies might then dedicate those resources to investigative and detective work in order to build solid cases against suspects, thereby creating a higher bar for which cases to pursue. Prosecutors would be forced to make a more careful calculation about the risk of bringing a case to trial, 
and drop cases that rested on a search of dubious legality. In the short term, the legitimacy of the entire system might take a hit, though only because its participants confronted the illegitimate basis of so many convictions. Over time, however, the system might regain the legitimacy it lost with a preference for punishment over justice. Quote, We all want to see justice happen, Capers recalled from his time as a prosecutor, and law enforcement often thinks that, in the interest of justice, the rules get in the way. I'm not aware of ever saying, does this story sound quite right? We benefited from small lies. And next up is a piece by Yanis Varoufakis. Uh, this is published at commondreams.org. The post-capitalist hit of the summer. Ever since COVID-19 collided with the enormous bubble governments have been using to refloat the financial sector since 2008, booming equity markets became compatible with wholesale economic implosion. That became clear on August 12 in London and New York. On August 12, something extraordinary happened. The news broke that in the first seven months of 2020, the United Kingdom's economy had suffered its largest contraction ever, a drop in national income exceeding 20%. The London Stock Exchange reacted with a rise in the FTSE 100 by more than 2%. On the same day, when the United States was beginning to resemble a failed state, not merely a troubled economy, the S&P 500 hit a record high. To be sure, financial markets have long rewarded misery-enhancing outcomes. Bad news for a firm's workers... Planned layoffs, for example, is often good news for its shareholders. But when the bad news engulfed most workers simultaneously, equity markets always fell, owing to the reasonable expectation that as the population tightened its belt, all income, and thus average profits and dividends, would be squeezed. The logic of capitalism was not pretty, but it was comprehensible. Not anymore. There is no capitalist logic to the developments that culminated on August 12. For the first time, a widespread expectation of diminished revenues and profits led to, or at least did not impede, a sustained buying frenzy in London and New York. And this is not because speculators are betting that the UK or US economies have hit bottom, making this a great time to buy shares. No, for the first time in history, financiers actually don't give a damn about the real economy. They can see that COVID-19 has put capitalism in suspended animation. They can see the disappearing profit margins. They can see the tsunami of poverty and its long-term effects on aggregate demand. And they can see how the pandemic is revealing and reinforcing deep pre-existing class and racial divisions. Speculators see all this, but deem it irrelevant. And they are not wrong. 
Ever since COVID-19 collided with the enormous bubble governments have been using to refloat the financial sector since 2008, booming equity markets became compatible with wholesale economic implosion. It was a historically significant moment, marking a subtle but discernible transition from capitalism to a peculiar type of post-capitalism. But let us begin at the beginning. Before capitalism, debt appeared at the very end of the economic cycle. Under feudalism, production came first. Peasants toiled in the Lord's fields, and distribution followed the harvest, with the sheriff collecting the Lord's share. Part of the share was then monetized when the Lord sold it. Only then did debt emerge, when the Lord would lend money to borrowers. Capitalism reversed the order. Once labor and land had been commodified, debt was necessary before production even began. Landless capitalists had to borrow to lease land, workers, and machines. The terms of these leases determined income distribution. Only then could production begin, yielding revenues whose residual was a capitalist profit. Thus, debt powered capitalism's early promise. But it was not until the second industrial revolution that capitalism could reshape the world in its image. Electromagnetism gave rise to the first networked companies, producing everything from power generation stations and the electricity grid to light bulbs for every room. These companies' gargantuan funding needs began at the begat the megabank, along with a remarkable capacity to create money out of thin air. The agglomeration of megafirms and megabanks created a technostructure that usurped markets, democratic institutions, and the mass media, leading first to the Roaring Twenties and then to the crash of 1929. From 1933 to 1971, global capitalism was centrally planned under different iterations of the New Deal governance framework, including the war economy and the Bretton Woods system. As that framework was swept away in the mid-1970s, the techno-structure, cloaked in neoliberalism, recovered its powers. A 1920s-like spate of irrational exuberance followed, culminating in the 2008 global financial crisis. To refloat the financial system, central banks channeled waves of dirt-cheap liquidity to the financial sector in exchange for universal fiscal austerity that limited spending by lower- and middle-income households. Unable to profit from austerity-hit consumers, investors became dependent on central banks' constant liquidity injections, an addiction with serious side effects for capitalism itself. Consider the following chain reaction. The European Central Bank extends new liquidity to Deutsche Bank at almost zero interest. To profit from it, Deutsche Bank must lend it on, though not to the, quote, little people whose diminished circumstances have weakened their repayment ability. So it lends to, say, Volkswagen, which is already awash with savings because its executives, fearing insufficient demand for new high-quality electric cars, postponed crucial investments in new technologies and well-paying jobs. 
even though Volkswagen's bosses do not need the cash, Deutsche Bank offers them such a low interest rate that they take it and immediately use it to buy Volkswagen shares. Naturally, the share price skyrockets and with it, the Volkswagen executives' bonuses, which are linked to the company's market capitalization. From 2009 to 2020, such practices helped prize stock prices away from the real economy, resulting in widespread corporate zombification. This was the state capitalism was in when COVID-19 arrived. By hitting consumption and production simultaneously, the pandemic forced governments to replace incomes at a time when the real economy had the least capacity adequately to invest in the generation of non-financial wealth. As a result, central banks were called upon to boost even more magnificently the debt bubble that they had already zombified the corporations. The pandemic has reinforced that which has been undermining the foundation of capitalism since 2008, the link between profit and capital accumulation. The current crisis has revealed a post-capitalist economy in which the markets for real goods and services no longer coordinate economic decision-making. The current technostructure manipulates behavior at an industrial scale, and the demos is ostracized from our democracies. Next up, a couple pieces from CommonDreams.org. First one here is by Jessica Corbett. Is there no end to big oil's evil? Campaigners condemn industry plan to pour U.S. plastics into Africa. Green groups responded with alarm to Sunday reporting by the New York Times and Unearthed that a U.S.-based trade group for major chemical and fossil fuel companies, has lobbied the Trump administration during the COVID-19 pandemic to use a forthcoming trade agreement to flood the African continent with plastics. U.S. Trade Representative Robert Lithizer and Kenya Cabinet Secretary for Industrialization, Trade, and Enterprise Development Betty Maina launched trade negotiations in July. The new reports shed light on the lobbying efforts of the American Chemistry Council, ACC, whose members include the petrochemical operations of the oil giants Chevron, ExxonMobil, and Shell, as well as chemical companies such as Dow and DuPont. The ACC is lobbying to influence United States trade negotiations with Kenya, one of Africa's biggest economies, to reverse its strict limits on plastics, including a tough plastic bag ban. It is also pressing for Kenya to continue importing foreign plastic garbage, a practice it has pledged to limit, the Times reported, citing documents obtained via public records request by Unearthed, Greenpeace UK's investigative journalism platform. Radio presenter Mike Finnerty called the Times report a sobering read, while WLRN reporter Danny Rivero said that, quote, This reads like a diabolical nightmare, which I guess it actually is. Climate advocates and political candidates also weighed in. The U.S.-based youth-led Sunrise Movement said in response to the reporting that, quote, 
Apparently, big oil can't let their industry die without trying to drag down African countries with it. Is there no end to big oil's evil? Tweeted 350.org. Author and activist Bill McKibben, who co-founded the Environmental Advocacy Group, declared, quote, This is evil on so many levels, it is hard to know where to start. Even before negotiations between the Trump administration and Kenya's government officially kicked off, Ed Brzezitwa, director of international trade for the ACC, wrote in an April 28 letter to the Office of the U.S. Trade Representative, quote, We anticipate that Kenya could serve in the future as a hub for supplying U.S.-made chemicals and plastics to other markets in Africa through this trade agreement. That message, along with opposition to waste trade rules under an international treaty called the Basel Convention, was echoed in an ACC letter to the U.S. International Trade Commission, according to Unearthed. An ACC spokesman told the, told the Greenpeace affiliate that the trade group is concerned the Basel restrictions, quote, could very well limit the ability of African and other developing countries to properly manage plastic waste by restricting their capacity to export materials abroad. Some ACC members joined with consumer goods recycling and waste management firms in early, 19, in early 2019 to launch the Alliance to End Plastic Waste. The companies involved have collectively committed $1.5 billion to reduce plastic waste and improve recycling, especially in developing countries. Greenpeace has called the effort a desperate attempt from corporate polluters to maintain the status quo on plastics. Noting the alliance, Unearth revealed that the ACC wrote in its letters to U.S. trade entities that, quote, There is a global need to support infrastructure development to collect, sort, recycle, and process used plastics, particularly in developing countries such as Kenya, the group claimed. Such an infrastructure will create opportunities for trade and investment and help keep used plastics out of the environment. Environmentalists in Kenya and across the globe are worried about the long-term consequences if the trade agreement results in more plastic entering their country. Quote, As a country, we have made strides to reduce the plastics that are used here and which end up as waste. There is a ban on use and manufacture of carrier bags and recently a ban on plastic in protected areas. So this trade deal would diminish what we have achieved as a country, Dorothy Otieno, of the Center for Environment, Justice, and Development, CEJAD, in Kenya, told Unearthed. Otenyo, Sejad's plastic program coordinator, raised concern about the impact of more plastic waste, explaining that, quote, some will be reused and recycled, but the majority will end up in dump sites. We will end up in a situation where Kenya will become a dump site for plastic waste. Quote, it clogs our waterways and our drainage systems and leads to flooding. We also see the effect of pollution from the burning of plastics. It produces dioxins and furans that lead to respiratory diseases, she said. Somebody can burn these wastes right next to your house and suffer the impacts. We also see the aesthetic value of our towns being reduced because of plastics. The Kenyan environmentalist concerns were shared by Greenpeace USA senior plastics campaigner Kate Melges and Greenpeace Africa senior political advisor Frederick Njehu, 
who responded to the reports in a statement Monday. Quote, Africa is at the forefront of the war on plastics, with 34 out of 54 countries having adopted some regulation to phase out single-use plastics, said Nijehu. The Kenyan government should not backslide on the progress made in its plastic-free ambitions by folding to pressure from fossil fuel giants because it stands to derail the progress made across the entire continent. Melges said that, quote, It is shameful, but not surprising, that struggling fossil fuel giants are lobbying for an expansion of their polluting plastic footprint into the African continent to keep their profits flowing. These companies hope to continue dumping single-use plastics on communities around the globe, despite their known impacts to the environment and public health, she added. Making public statements about ending plastic pollution while quietly lobbying to allow Africa to be used as a plastic dumping ground is next-level hypocrisy and greenwashing. And this is the second piece from CommonDreams.org. This one written by David Suzuki and Ian Hannington. We are living in a plastic world. Almost every product and material we refer to as plastic is made from fossil fuels. Most of it hasn't been around for long, a little over 70 years for the most common products. North America grocery stores didn't start offering plastic bags until the late 1970s. Over that short time, plastics have become ubiquitous. A Center for International Environmental Law report says global plastic production exploded 200-fold between 1950 and 2015, from 2 million to 380 million tons. Plastic is everywhere, from the ocean depths to the mountaintops, from Antarctica to the Arctic, even in our own bodies. As a report points out, almost every piece of plastic begins as a fossil fuel. This creates greenhouse gas emissions throughout its life cycle, from extraction and transport to refining and manufacturing to managing waste and impacts. The report projects these emissions could reach 1.34 gigatons per year by 2030. Quote, equivalent to the emissions released by more than 295 new 500-megawatt coal-fired power plants. There are good reasons for plastic's popularity. It is lightweight, durable, inexpensive, easily shaped, and can be used to safely store many materials, from water to chemicals. That it's long-lasting is part of the problem. Plastics don't decompose like organic substances. Instead, they break down into smaller and smaller pieces, much of which ends up in oceans, where it is consumed by marine life and birds. These microplastics work their way through the food web and eventually to humans. There's still much to learn about microplastics' health effects, but exposure in animals has been linked to liver and cell damage, infertility, inflammation, cancer, and starvation. The 50,000 plastic particles that each of us breathes and eats every year, and the microplastic pollution falling on some cities, undoubtedly have an impact, 
especially as many of the chemicals in plastics are known to cause a range of health problems. A recent study also shows the ocean plastics problem is worse than thought. Although with tons of plastic debris and particles swirling in massive ocean gyres, it's hard to imagine it could be. The study from the UK's National Oceanographic Centre found the Atlantic has 10 times more plastic than had been estimated. Researchers previously calculated the amount entering the Atlantic between 1950 and 2015 to be from 17 million to 47 million tons. New measurements show it is closer to 200 million. Another report from the World Economic Forum, Ellen MacArthur Foundation, and McKinsey and Company estimated the oceans could hold more plastic by weight than fish by 2050 if trends continue. Because most plastic doesn't get recycled, researchers also estimated that 95% of plastic packaging value, worth $80 to $120 billion annually, is lost. It also found that by 2050, the entire plastics industry will consume 20% of total oil production and 15% of the world's annual carbon budget. The study, The New Plastics Economy, outlines steps whereby circular economy principles could resolve many issues around plastics in the environment. These require eliminating all problematic and unnecessary plastic items, innovating to ensure the plastics are reusable, recyclable, or compostable, and circulating all plastic items to keep them in the economy and out of the environment. And while individual efforts are helpful, they don't go far enough. As Carol Muffett, lead author of the SEAL report, argues, we can't recycle our way out of the plastics crisis. Instead, we must stop producing fossil fuels and unnecessary disposable plastic items. Reducing use is key, but shifting to plant-based plastics and other products is also crucial. As we've written before, the COVID-19 pandemic has exposed flaws in our outdated economic systems. But it also, but it's also provided an opportunity to pause and figure out how to build back better. Our constant rush to exploit resources, burn fossil fuels, and create disposable plastic products for the sake of short-term profits is putting all life and health at risk. We should have started phasing out fossil fuels and their byproducts decades ago, when we realized they were creating massive amounts of air, water, and land pollution, and heating the planet to temperatures that put our health and survival at risk. The longer we delay, the more difficult change becomes. It is time for new ideas. It is time for a just, green recovery. And finally, a piece published at France24.com from the Agence France Press. The world is missing all targets to save nature, the UN warns. Countries are set to miss all of the targets they set themselves a decade ago to preserve nature and save Earth's bi vital biodiversity, the United Nations said Tuesday. 
Humanity's impact on the natural world over the last five decades has been nothing short of cataclysmic. Since 1970, close to 70% of wild animals, birds, and fish have vanished, according to a WWF assessment this month. Last year, the UN's panel on biodiversity called IPBES warned that one million species face extinction as man-made activity has already severely degraded three-quarters of land on Earth. In 2010, 190 member states of the UN's Convention on Biological Diversity committed to a battle plan to limit the damage inflicted on the natural world by 2020. The 20 objectives range from phasing out fossil fuel subsidies and limiting habitat loss to protecting fish stocks. But in its latest Global Diversity Outlook released Tuesday, the UN said not one of these goals would be met. Quote, We are currently, in a systematic manner, exterminating all non-human living beings. Anne Laraguadere, IPBS Executive Secretary, told AFP. Ahead of the UN General Assembly in a crucial year of diplomacy for nature and the climate, the assessment found none of the biodiversity targets would be fully met, quote, undermining efforts to address climate change. The coronavirus pandemic has scuppered plans for two huge biodiversity summits this year, with the COP15 negotiations and International Union for Conservation of Nature's Global Congress, both of which aim at boosting international nature preservation efforts, pushed back to 2021. Lara Goderie said the global health crisis should serve as a wake-up call to world leaders. Quote, We're collectively better understanding that this crisis is linked to everything we wish to discuss at COP15 talks in China, she said. Elizabeth Maruma Marema, Executive Secretary of the Convention on Biological Diversity, told AFP that societies were waking up to the importance of nature. Quote, the situation with COVID has demonstrated very clearly that deforestation, human encroachment into the wild, has an impact on our daily lives, she said. The public has realized that the most dangerous species is us human beings and that they themselves need to play a role to put pressure on industry to change. The assessment lays out pathways to reverse nature loss during the decade to 2030, including sweeping changes to our farming system and reductions in food waste and overconsumption. A key constituent in preservation is indigenous populations, which control about 80% of biodiversity worldwide. Andy White, coordinator of the Rights and Resources Initiative, a global coalition of more than 150 groups pushing for indigenous empowerment, told AFP there was no longer any excuse for not investing in these communities. White said they should be placed at the heart of conservation initiatives by boosting indigenous land rights. Quote, a proven solution for protecting ecosystems that are vital to health of the planet and its people. The GBO said that some progress had been made towards protecting nature in the last decade. For instance, the rate of deforestation has dropped by around a third compared with the previous decade. The 20-year period since 2000 has seen protected areas increase from 10% of land to 15%. 
and from 3% of oceans to at least 7% currently. But among the dangers to nature detailed in the report was a continued prevalence of fossil fuel subsidies, which the authors estimated at about $500 billion annually. David Cooper, the lead author of the GBO assessment, said there were segments of society with vested interests preventing governments from reducing support to polluting industries. Subsidies are harmful to biodiversity, and in most cases, in the aggregate, harmful economically and socially, he told AFP. Reacting to the UN's assessment, Andy Purvis from the Department of Life Sciences at Britain's Natural History Museum said it was shocking that the world was set to miss all 20 of its own nature protection targets. We have to recognize that we're in a planetary emergency, he said. It's not just that species will die out, but also that ecosystems will be too damaged to meet society's needs. And that'll wrap up this episode of Howie 2020. Remember, if you want to uh, check out all those back episodes of Howie 2020 and Bernie 2020, you can go to Bernie-2020.com. You can also follow on Twitter at Howie underscore 2020. Here is the song Red Ant by Oludara. Thanks for listening. Junior, mama call you. Brenda, he out there with them ants again. So he claim he can talk to him. Pat, go out there and get your brother. Mm-hmm. Hey, hey, hey. I saw a red ant crying. Cause the black ant was walking on his heels. Saw a black ant crying. Cause the white ant was trying to steal Saw a white ant crying Cause nature refused to pay his bill But nature Nature cries too But nature Y'all don't want to see me cry Y'all going to dinner All three of y'all go together Y'all went together When they finished eating When they finished eating Was the one happy fella Your own bed, you make your own bed. I gave me everything, gave me everything, gave me everything I could. Cause I'll send you El El Nino 
said, Mr. Redman, can go up in that mountain, yeah. Won't y'all dance? Dance, dance. Dance, 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 dance. So red and crying. Cause the black ant was walking on his heel. White ant was trying to steal. So white ant crying, crying, crying. Cause nature refused to pay his bill. But nature, nature. 